I hope you had some good conversations in your small groups and uh, you're ready for some more. Um, it's great to be back. My social media, I had posted a picture of all of us here gathered singing and uh, I had some friends comment to me and they said, uh, well, that looks like, that looks like our church. <laughs> looks just like our church. You must feel at home. I said the same thing. I felt so at home. I don't know why. I just felt so at home. So it, it's interesting to see, but I know why. <clears throat> Everyone looks like me. <laughs> Makes it a little bit easier. I was in Nashville, Tennessee um, just before I got here. And um, all my Christian brothers and sisters were there. They loved the Lord. They loved each other. They were so good to me. I didn't feel as home. <laughs> Um, I, I travel a lot, and so when I visit different churches, I went to this one church, it was like 2,500 people, huge church, and I visited, and I walked in, and everyone came up to me, and they're like, hello, are you new? It's so nice to meet you, and I said, wow, that is amazing. This church, they all recognized that I was new. How do you do that when there's 2,500 people at the church? It was in the south, um, I didn't realize, it took me a few minutes to realize, oh, wait a minute, I see why you know that I'm new. I stick out. Not that many uh, good-looking men, I think. That's what it was. <laughs> no, no, that wasn't it. Uh, easily recognize uh, that I didn't fit in. I was not part of the regular you know, group. So that was interesting to me. Um, I'm going to share some more of my drama, my past, and uh, hopefully you'll find that very entertaining. And... Um, well, let me begin first by reading scripture for you. Today's verse comes from Psalm 139:14. You could follow along in your programs if you want. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Psalm 139:14. Thus far, God's word. <clears throat> I confess that none of these words ever made sense to me. Starting with the very beginning, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderful made, wonderfully made. As I shared with you last night, in my relationship with the Lord, I don't think I ever praised God for the way I was made. Partially because in society and in the church, I felt outcast. I felt like I didn't belong. His, words, his works were not wonderful. My soul did not understand very well what the Lord was doing. Again, I said either God has a terrible sense of humor, a cosmic killjoy who wants to see young Alex suffer, or he wasn't paying much attention and God made a mistake. But God does not make mistakes. He made us fearfully and wonderfully. And so I, I look at this passage and I share with you because there are times where you just don't feel at home. You don't feel like you belong. Um, I had a, as we we're singing the first song today, in my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Those are beautiful words. So encouraging, so welcoming. There's a place for me just as I am. I don't need to change. I certainly don't need to change my ontology. I don't need to change my, my makeup, right, who I am. I cannot become non-Asian 
And for the longest time, I just assumed, and pastor shared it yesterday, that when I go to heaven, maybe then I'll become white. Maybe I will be accepted. You ever think about that? That the way that we're made, God intended, then when we go to heaven, we'll maintain who we are. All the tongues, tribes, and nations will gather together. That's a beautiful thing. Except for if you don't see that as a beautiful thing, you're like, you mean I'm going to be trapped in this face, in this body forever? For eternity? That doesn't sound very nice. And part of the challenge for me has been embracing the Imago Dei. Embracing being who I am, made in God's image. That he did not make a mistake. That I am indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. I had heard about this church. There's a lot of talk in our denomination about exilic, so it's kind of neat. Um, and so it's a real treat for me to be here. And part of it was, depending on who you ask, there's a lot of energy, a lot of younger people, uh, good preaching, wonderful praise. All of that has been true. But what was interesting is people said, yeah, there's a lot of Asian Americans at the church. Right? You ask some other people, they say, oh, it's a Korean church. And I said, well, why is it a Korean church? They said, oh, because the pastor's Korean. Oh, is that how it works? <laughs> okay, that's good to know. So uh, every church that is a multi-ethnic, it's usually run by white people who say very intentionally, they say, we want different types of people in our church. So we welcome Asians and African Americans and Latinos. We want them to come to our church. But usually who's in charge, right? Who's represented? They're usually white pastors. Well-intentioned, but they're white pastors who are leading. You might have an associate pastor, an assistant, who's African-American or a praise leader who's Asian. Um, but you look at the demographic and the makeup, and it's interesting when we talk about representation. We're not just talking about the numbers, butts in seats, right? You have to see yourself represented. Um, and who's preaching regularly and, and who's on leadership. But it's interesting because if it's a dominant majority group that's in charge and they have a mix of different people, they can claim that it's a multi-ethnic church. Pastor Aaron shared this a little bit last night as well. Um, industry standard is if 20% of your uh, makeup in the congregation is the non-dominant group, 20% of the makeup is a non-dominant group, whatever that dominant group is, then you are technically multi-ethnic, which is an interesting way of defining it. But let's use that for a second, right? So generally people will think in a big uh, dominant majority church, we just got to get enough of, it's like Noah's Ark, let's find two by two, all the different animals, uh, the different colors, and let's get them into the church. This is a fascinating place. As it was mentioned yesterday, it's not uh, the pastor's Korean-American, that's fine, but the makeup of the church, technically, you're a multi-ethnic church. If you're closer to 20% of your congregation not being a dominant group, that would be a multi-ethnic church. And that's how it should be defined. But depends on whose lens you're looking, right? On whose lens you're looking. Now, my church is predominantly Asian uh, and Korean. And uh, one of the challenges that we have in our church is we want to share the gospel. We want to invite people uh, to come. And I've heard this several times from members. They say, Elder Alex, I would love to bring my coworkers to church, but we're so Asian. And my coworkers are not Asian. Uh, and so they're going to have a really hard time. So 
people would share with me, they said, Elder Alex, I'd love to invite someone to our church, but the church is so Asian, so I, we have a hard time. And I said, I'm sorry, was the preaching too hard? Was, I think we're preaching in English. I'm pretty sure our pastor speaks pretty good English because he was born in the U.S. He doesn't speak anything else. No, it's just, it feels so uncomfortable. I saw some heads nodding. Maybe you could relate to some of this. What's fascinating about that is my white brothers and sisters at the church down the street would never say that. When they see a non-white person come to church, they say, oh, we'd love for you to come. It's good for our diversity. We'd love for you to come. They never get, oh, but we're all white. Are you going to be okay here? And I say, I I'll be Alex will be fine. I have a lot of practice. <laughs> I, I have that at work. It's at school. It's in my community. When I go to Vons or Traegers, yeah, I'm used to it. I'll be okay. And what's interesting is there are some people, non-Asians, who come to our church who immediately stick out. You don't need to ask them if this is their first time at church. You know it's their first time or third time or whatever it is. So it's interesting that that, that happens. But I want to go back to sort of the psyche behind that. When members had said, oh, Elder Alex, we feel uncomfortable bringing someone to church. And I said, oh, goodness, it, I lamented because I used to say the same thing. And I think part of that is just my internalized sociologists would call this internalized oppression. My internalized hatred of self is how I've ended up understanding it. I was ashamed to bring people in because, well, we do also have a Korean service, so there's kimchi, and I said, oh, this is terrible. I'm so sorry for the smell. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's the same thing as uh, Alex was when I invited my non-Korean friends to my house. And I would be so apologetic. I'm sorry, you have to take your shoes off. Is that okay? And, you know, they're like, this is ridiculous. I'll take my shoes off. I don't take my shoes off for anybody. Okay, I'll take my shoes off. Fine. What a weird place. What's that smell? Um, so I was always apologetic about my own house. I was ashamed. Um, to be honest, I was ashamed of my own parents because they would then, with broken English, welcome people, my friends in. And I said, oh, yeah, they don't really speak English very well. Um, and just always apologizing, always apologizing. And at church, it turned out it was the same thing. Always apologizing. I'm sorry, we're, we're so many Asians here. Are you going to be okay? And my focus was so much more on my superficial external rather than the gospel. So what's the answer? I mean, one of my... Uh, members would say, yeah, so I, I share the gospel with this person at work. They're really interested. And then I said, I hope you can find a church somewhere else. I, I hope you could land a place, you know, that you would fit in. It's fascinating because when you're the dominant group and you walk into a non-dominant space, right, they can get by just fine because as soon as service is over, might be a little uncomfortable for a while, but as soon as ser service is over, they go back into the real world, the rest of the world, their own community. Everything is fine. They're back to normal. And that may not be true if I think about immigrants and the, the experience of immigrant churches and why there's so much community. You know, at least for the Korean um, history, it's, it's only like 40 years old. Um, immigration laws changed in the 1960s. Um, 
More people from places like South Korea were able to then immigrate, first as students and then business visas and then uh, by invitation. And um, if you're Korean American like myself, maybe that's been your family experience. You'll find very few Korean Americans born earlier than um, the 60s in the United States. A lot of them are in the 70s and 80s and immigrate. And that, that says something. The churches that were established in the United States served as much as a spiritual oasis uh, not just a spiritual oasis, but also a social oasis where people felt valued and affirmed. They weren't even Christians, but they felt so alone. And I've heard some testimonies of my friends whose parents went to church 20 years and eventually got saved in the church, but they had gone for the community primarily. And that says something because other friends who are not um, in the minority groups would say, I don't understand that. Why do you spend all day at church? And why do you hang out in the parking lot so long? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, why don't you just go home? Right? You got neighbors and friends. Go talk to your neighbors. And it's funny because I think in your community, those are your neighbors, right? You, you drive in, you pass 18 churches to get to, at least in Southern California, 18 other churches to get to the church that you want to go to. And once you're there, you don't leave. And you stay as long as you can because it's not just your uh, spiritual group, it's your friendship groups as well. And there is nothing wrong with that. But recognize where that comes from because I talked to some of my other friends. They're like, oh, I hang out with my neighbors. And I said, I don't hang out with any of my neighbors because right? none of them are like me. We don't have anything in common. Uh, that's a whole other discussion for another time to talk about what it means to love and care for our neighbors and not just those who look like us and feel like us. So I want to balance it out because I know people are going to say you can't just be with your own people. But recognize why it is so welcoming to be with people who, if I don't say anything at all, it's understood. Something beautiful about being known and to know another without uttering a word. There was a, you ever watch Antique Roadshow? That's probably generation above you. Maybe Pawn Stars, that's a better example. Um, I love that show because there's, uh, there's always items laying around the house that are seemingly worthless, right? Um, and so what they do is they bring it in and they uh, record these people bringing, it just looks like junk. They bring it in, especially the Antique Roadshow. And they say, oh yeah, here's a... Here's a, uh, an antique camera that I have that it was passed down generation to generation. I was going to throw it away, but I thought I'd bring it in and see if it's worth anything. And I got it from my aunt. It was sitting in the corner. And I watched this one episode where um, this person did this, brought in a camera, and it looked pretty nasty and dusty and rusty and all that. And um, he said, well, what's it worth? So they brought in an appraiser and said, oh, this is a classic antique camera. It's 120 years old. It's the, one of the first cameras ever made. Um, I wonder how much they bought it for. Maybe it was 50 pounds because uh, it was from uh, England. And they valued at $20,000 for this camera that was worthless to him. It was, it was just sitting around. It was a liability. How in the world did that all of a sudden become an asset? I love that show because it reminds me of my own journey. For so long, I saw my identity as a liability. Lo and behold, it's been an asset all along. An asset all along. It's um, baseball postseason now, so you can understand uh, the baseball analogies that I'll give. If you have an entire pitching team 
of right-handed pitchers, you will never make the postseason. You have to have a left-handed pitcher. Left-handed pitchers are important. In certain cases, a left-handed pitcher can get a left-handed batter out if they can throw a curveball. Right-handed batters don't know how to hit it and all these types of things. So it's a value to have a left-handed pitcher, right? Now, when you talk about diversity, some people will say, oh, I see, it's affirmative action. Right-handed pitchers are no longer welcome, right? Yeah, we need to balance it out. No, that's not how you think about this. You value the left-handed pitchers because they bring something not, it doesn't benefit the left-handed pitcher. It benefits the entire team. You can't win in the postseason unless you have the diversity of different pitchers and different players. That makes sense when you think about baseball. Why does that not make sense when we start talking about other groups have, who have long been underrepresented in the church? They were, they were liabilities or a head-scratcher at best. Turns out, they're assets for the kingdom. It doesn't benefit Asian Americans to be Asian American. It benefits the entire church of Jesus Christ to have Asian Americans. And I think uh, that's slowly being recognized in the broader scope of uh, the church in the United States. Oftentimes, part of our challenge, and this is true for leaders as well, um, when we look out and we want to be Maybe we want to be intentionally multi-ethnic. I've shared this uh, with a dear friend of mine, Owen Lee. We used to do ministry together. Uh, when we want to be intentionally multi-ethnic, we run into another danger. So eager are we to try to find that left-handed pitcher. So eager are we to try to find someone who looks different to make sure that we can diversify. We end up caring a little bit more for that person who looks different in order to meet some sort of secret quota in our own minds. And uh, my brother had confessed this, and I, I confess it too, that there were times when I wanted to be multi-ethnic in my church that we'd see a non-Korean or non-Asian walk into the church. And I just felt so validated, right? Because, oh, we're becoming more multi-ethnic. It's great. And we'd welcome them, and we'd want them to stay. And then when you see an Asian walk in, you're like, oh, okay, well, here's another one. That's not going to help. Let's find anybody else. Can we, I wonder if this white person has any more friends. Maybe they can bring friends so we can look more Asian or less Asian. Um, and what happens is we fall into the sin of particularity. We fall into the sin of, of, of being inhospitable to our own people sometimes in this longing and this search to try to find others. And even that I realized Satan can use and twist because the focus was then too much on the superficial, and we went, never went deeper. We never talked about the spiritual. So these are challenges that perhaps you guys can talk about together uh, as you think about what it means to be at this church at this particular time in your life as the Lord is bringing whoever the Lord brings. Some other issues that I have that I will share with you um, there was a, a long-standing tradition, I don't know where it came from, but in the Korean-speaking church, this idea of morning prayer. They'd wake up early in the morning, and they'd pray, and they'd drive to church to do it. And uh, it was just the weirdest thing, and I hated it, because when I became an elder, they said, oh, elder, you're going to come to morning prayer now, right? I said, nope. I'm not going to do it. I came up with every possible theological argument against this idea of morning prayer. 
couldn't stand it. And I don't know what it is. I'll confess with you now. Why, did I, why was I so angry with the generation that came before me? And everything that they did just bothered me. Um, their elders were untrained theologically. You know, they just, all they did was pray. They always agreed with the pastor. They were, all they did was give their money. I don't know what was going on. And it took a long time for me to come to repentance to say, why was I so angry about that? What sort of self-hate was I struggling with? Because I look at the generation now, sorry pastors, uh, I look at the generation now and the leaders, we don't pray at five in the morning, I get that, but when do we pray? Five at night? Can we get half an hour in? Do we have that kind of piety that I hated so much seeing growing up? And why was I so angry about that? And the sacrificial giving, I know friends would tell me their stories about uh, their parents would have community group and people would come over and they'd stay all night. And uh, moms were cooking the food, like from, uh, if it's on Friday or Saturday, they start cooking on Wednesday and get everything prepared and they're exhausted, you know, this feast, overabundance of food. And, uh, and people wouldn't leave. And, you know, the kids growing up hated it. They hated it. And now it seems to be hard to get people together for community. And the first thing that people ask is like, hey, can I get these tacos reimbursed? Can we get the sandwiches? Can everyone just bring their own? Right? It seems egalitarian enough and seems fair enough, but what's missing is the sacrificial love. And there's so many lessons that I feel like I have not appreciated from a generation that came before me. And I find myself repenting. I find myself longing to rekindle some of this piety that I hated so much. And I think it's rooted in this self-shame that I look at people who are generation and they didn't speak English and all this, and there's something beautiful about it. I was in Houston once, and I um, was visiting this church, and I heard this 90-year-old Korean pastor praying, and he was praying in Korean. It was the most interesting prayer I've ever heard. He was praying, and he said, Lord, thank you so much for your faithfulness during the days of the Japanese occupation where we had a hard time worshiping, um, and you were faithful to us. Uh, And Lord, thank you that we were able to worship you even during the war um, where we had no place to live, but you were faithful when we were able to worship. And thank you, Lord, for bringing us to the United States, even though we don't speak the language and we don't know the culture and we're struggling financially, um, but we're able to worship you. This is a 90-year-old man's prayer, and I was weeping at the end of it. I don't know the same God that he does. His experiences, his suffering... His immigration experience, all of that, I just, I look at him as like an old man who can't speak English. And I was more filled with shame than I was with awe and reverence. And I found myself repenting. What does the future of the church look like? Heaven now, and we would hear the language. If, would the language be in English? It might be Mandarin. There may be more Mandarin-speaking Christians than English speaking. It might be Spanish. We may be very surprised in heaven. Oh, what's going on? It might be Korean. (laughs) It might be Dutch. I don't know. Okay. But it's fascinating because I think I longed for validation from a dominant group. As an angry young Asian man, as an elder in the church leading, as someone who's uh, very involved in the denomination, it's this weird thing that I still feel so connected to the dominant group and wanting some sort of affirmation. 
and the mere presence of somebody who comes in from the dominant group somehow gives me validity and purpose. It's a very odd, odd thing that I'm still wrestling with. So I'm growing more and more comfortable. Here's another confession. When um, a church or a gathering that is fairly multi-ethnic, I suppose, maybe 20% is non-white, and I see a few other Asians and I gather with them and then I hear it. Hmm, Alex, what's going on? I'm a little concerned. I see the Asians are starting to hang out together. And we're a little concerned why that is. And I, when I was younger, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry we did that. And then I became much more intentional. When I saw other Asians, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go talk to some other people because we shouldn't be seen together. I shouldn't just hang out with other Asians. I should start talking with other people. But my motivation behind that was because I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to hear the criticism from someone saying, why are you always hanging out together with people who look like you? For years, I thought that. And then I finally realized, wait a second. We just got here to this community, and we're hanging out together. But you all have been hanging out together for hundreds of years. Nobody ever questioned what it's like when you're in the dominant group and you gather together. Isn't that interesting? We had a, a friend who became president, Asian-American, became president of a seminary, Joel Kim. And uh, he's looking to hire some more people. And he has a great candidate, another one who is uh, Asian-American. Wait for it. Here it comes. Somebody said, oh, is, is he only going to hire Asians from now on? Um, is that what's going to happen at this seminary? And it was interesting because I said, well, if you look at the 100-year history of this uh, organization, everybody was white, and they hired other white people. So I figured we got another 100 years before we even this out, right? We can, <laughs> and then we can talk about that. No, it's so funny how, that, how quickly that happens, that normativity that plays into. And then guess who buys into that the most? It's usually the minority who says, I can't hire another person who looks like me because it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good to whom? In whose eyes are we seeking value and purpose? Is it the Lord's or is it the dominant majority group who gets to determine and set what diversity ought to look like. This is an ongoing struggle for me, perhaps for you as well, as you think about this church, you think about your communities, and how we can be intentional. I loved serving in my denomination. I was a moderator uh, for a year. It doesn't really mean very much other than that you're very publicly visible. And um, this is the first time they've had a, a minority as a moderator for the Presbyterian Church in America. It was the first time they had an Asian American. And what was interesting as I did that is I felt like I had to represent all things Asian. I had to represent all things Asian. And immediately my thought was, will we ever have another Asian American? Partly because if I screwed it up bad enough, they'd say, we'll never do that again. We can never have another Asian. So I felt this sort of internalized pressure to make sure that I performed well, make sure that I did well. That's pretty consistent with how I grew up. My parents would tell me all the time, you know, you're, you're not like everybody else here, so you have to do better than everybody else. You have to work harder. You have to have more degrees. 
Um, you have to always be driven. And that was sort of what was locked into my mindset. My parents would say things like, we came to this country and we're suffering, we don't speak the language and, and we're economically disadvantaged because of all these things. We had a good life before, but now we're immigrants and we're struggling. And because of that, you need to do well. You need to make us proud or don't make us proud, just don't shame us. It was more the negative than it was the positive. And so I was driven. I think I still am just driven to try to do well, to do well. Even when you become a moderator of a denomination, my thoughts were, I can't screw this up. I can't make my people look bad. I can't disappoint anybody. And it's so hard because I'm trying to deconstruct that in my own mind, in my own journey. I guess what, what happens is I look at God the same way. This is where it gets uh, problematic, that I think I need to keep performing, keep working hard so that God would love me, so that God would accept me. Now is God proud of me? Is God happy? But we know this, friends. God, is, God loves us despite our sins, not by our performance, not if we do well. God loves us despite all those things. Jesus died for us in spite of our failures. So we don't have to work. We don't have to perform. But perhaps it's unique, not to me, but I know others, children of immigrants have that same idea, especially with education. We're so driven. We're trying to perform. We're trying to do well. We're, we're trying to impress. Mom and dad have to have something to talk about when they gather with their friends. Oh, my kid got into this school, got into this internship, works at this well-known company. And we internalize that. I want to be careful. I don't want to overgeneralize. But then I look at some of my friends in the dominant culture. And they're like, yeah, I might go to college. I might not. I might work as a carpenter. You know, there's some good money in plumbing. And, and I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm like, how could you say that? How can you say that? Uh, you're not going to go to college. You're not going to PhD. You're not going to go to Harvard. Uh, what's wrong with you? You have to do these things. And I realize there's this amazing comfort in being a dominant group. You're like, no, nah, I'll be fine. There's no sense of immigration stress. They've got generational wealth. Um, and, and there's just some freedom that I have never experienced. But my children are. I can see the change. My children are experiencing it. I'm, I'm less driven in these ways, trying to tell my children, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Lord loves you. Mom and dad don't care if you go to Harvard or not. You don't have to get straight A's. That's different from excellence. Seeking excellence as unto the Lord, that's different from saying that you have to get straight A's. It's not performance driven. But believe you me, I am struggling internally every day with my own idolatries of my children. As I struggle with my own idolatries of self to break free from this. And it's hard because in the communities that I live, uh, uh, Arcadia, California is mostly Chinese American, but a variety of Chinese Americans. So people are from Southeast Asia, and we have some um, South Asians, Indian Americans, and then Korean Americans, and everyone is so driven by education. That's why they're in the school district. That's why they have all of these after-school programs, and that's why it's so cutthroat, and why so many children are suicidal. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel like, if I can't do everything that I need to do, then why should I even be here? 
And so this is a problem within, at least in, I know in, in the Asian American communities where I am, this is an ongoing challenge to break free from this idolatry that's so driven by success and performance and perfection. Um, and it's just rooted, I believe it's rooted in some of our culture. And it's in the church too. And I'm trying really hard to not have after-school programs at our church. So it's not like, can you, can you have Chinese school and Korean school and Taekwondo on Saturdays as well as piano lessons? And I get it, I get it. But no, we don't, we'd rather teach the Bible. We'd rather teach scripture if we're going to do anything at all together. So that, that's part of the challenge that we have in our communities. Demographically, you see the shift in America. More and more non-white Folks, 2042 is the number. According to Harry Kondabalu, a uh, comedian, uh, he's talking about 2042 is when U.S. Census says that uh, the majority of the world will be non-white. Okay, so that's the balance. But the reality is all the non-whites are not all getting along, right? You get black, Latino, all the different varieties of Asian, Asian Americans. We just happen to be non-white. That doesn't make any sense. So that census data and everyone's talking about, it doesn't really make much sense. I think for our purposes, as you think about, and I'll get very specific about this community here, what is a dominant group and what is a non-dominant group? And you look at the broader church, how are you going to work with different groups? Can you be a multi-ethnic slash Asian American church? Yes. Should you be ashamed of that? No, this is perfect. If you're, in, you're reaching your community, and New York is a fascinating place. New York has so many different languages and nations and cultures represented. And if you say, I'm reaching out to the people who are in my community, my sense is this is what the community looks like. This is your community. There are others, but this is your community. And so when, when I talk with other um, uh, Anglo pastor friends, and they say, well, we're in a, in a city, in a county, in a state that's all white. And we feel so bad about that, Alex. Are we okay? And I, I want to liberate them. I say, of course that's okay. Of course that's okay. If you're reaching your community with the gospel, then that, that, that is okay. And it's funny how liberating that is for some people to hear. I find it interesting that I have... Um, Several white friends who struggle so much with wanting to hear absolute, absolution and forgiveness. Uh, what was the name of this uh, person? Botham John's um, brother, Brant. Brant John. Are you familiar with this story? Botham John was uh, murdered by a police officer in Dallas in his own room. You know, a police officer came into the wrong room, thought it was her apartment. Um, she was off-duty police officer, had her weapon. Saw a um, black man sitting in what she thought was her room and shot him dead. She was convicted of murder. In the victim impact testimony, uh, Brant John shared, and this is the hug scene around the world. He said he forgave her. And he said, I wish you didn't have to go to prison. And then if it's okay, judge, I want to give, give her a hug. And they went over and you see this image of a black man hugging a white female police officer who was just convicted of murdering his brother. And it just went, it went viral. 
It went viral with certain groups who said, this is beautiful. And just for a moment, I want to say, I get that. I get from a spiritual level how we long for absolution. We long at my church. We have a tradition where we confess our sins. And then afterwards, scripture is read and we're reminded that we are forgiven of our sins. And that's the favorite part of worship for me because I need to be reminded that I'm forgiven. And so perhaps that's what's driving this, that we all long to be forgiven, but in this very complex issue of race and racism, a lot of white brothers and sisters, Christians, love this image because they said, this is beautiful. Forgiveness, it's what they long to hear. But in other communities and friends of mine, mostly people of color, they were so frustrated. Most of my black Christian friends were saying, this just doesn't sit right with me. Why do we always have to be the ones to be doing the forgiving? Why is the expectation that all the suffering that we've endured due to racism can simply be washed away with forgiveness? And you want us to be very palatable in that way. Smiling, never holding a grudge, always, always forgiving. And I think both are true. Both are true. I don't think it's as simple as saying, I'm going to ask for forgiveness and then everything's going to be well. There's damage that's done. There are consequences of our actions that is still true. We had, uh, you, you hear this more and more, moments of uh, people repenting and making amends of things that happened in the past and public statements of apology, confession, forgiveness, uh, uh, confessions and repentance. But you don't hear it as much with forgiveness. Um, I mentioned this yesterday, I showed the slide of uh, comfort women and a lot of folks that are Koreans still hold a grudge and are still saying, Japan, you need to forgive, you, you need to confess this. But on the flip side, I say, Koreans, you need to forgive. It goes both ways. Even if they haven't confessed it yet, you have to forgive. That's a good spiritual practice for us. Does that mean we negate and we forget what happened? Of course not. We still remember, but we have to forgive. For a watching world who don't believe in Jesus, they want to see how Christians, how God's people respond to some of these things. So there was something beautiful about that hug scene around the world with the forgiveness. We're right here at Princeton. It's in the news just this week. Uh, Princeton Seminary made this announcement uh, that they're looking into their past history and their past sins with slavery. And they're trying to address now, what are they going to, it's a multi-layered plan at Princeton Seminary of how they're going to address this issue of slavery. And, and, and it's rooted in their, in their history and their past. That's good, that's progress. They're putting it out in the open, we're talking about it. And I think that's, that's very, very important. The church will continue to have problems. The church will continue to have racial problems. I hope that liberates us. There is no solution. There's always going to be problems. As more people gather, more sinful people gather, we're going to have issues. The problem is not that we have issues. The problem is how we're going to resolve these issues together in a way that is winsome, that is Christ-glorifying. That's what we need to focus on. There's a long history as we think about how Christians, unbeknownst to them, practiced a lot of racism. In the 1600s, the General Assembly of Virginia had a meeting 
and they had a resolution that uh, slaves who were baptized could still be enslaved by their masters. Now, what's fascinating about this law that was passed was why would something like that have to emerge? In England, uh, there was a general rule and understanding that a Christian could not own another Christian. And so that practice was then brought um, to the United States into the New World, and, and then you had chattel slavery, and good Christians who wanted to have their businesses uh, expanded their cotton and whatever other industry they were in had enslaved African American Africans and um, they shared the gospel with them well as I said last night some Africans came to faith and they got baptized and so then what happened was they said hold on if I'm baptized and I am now a Christian can I be owned by another Christian so they were seeking their freedom and so that's why the General Assembly in Virginia had to have this discussion and what they had decided was we're gonna you absolutely should continue to share the gospel and bring people to faith but it has no connection to your everyday life your economy your business and your enslavement in other words spirituality of the church you can have this separation does that sound familiar? This is the same issue today. We're not going to deal with social justice issues, racial justice issues in the church. All right, we're just going to talk about the spiritual. How problematic is that? We need to address it. It's a biblical issue for us. And if you've had experiences as I've had, you've had these interactions with a dominant group, a non-dominant group, you've struggled with your own identity, you've struggled with how to wrestle with this, it's not going to go away. We're going to continue to have to have these discussions. And who better to have these discussions than people who've experienced this? Who better to have these discussions? So I go around and talk about these things, but so can you. You can have these conversations with your own communities. You can have these discussions with one another. And I, as the future of the church in America continues to change, the landscape and the demographics continue to change, these are the types of churches, we're the types of people who God will continue to use to talk about injustices as Christians. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this time, this morning. Uh, what a blessing it is to be able to talk so freely, so openly about things that have long been painful for me and I know for others. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have. Thank you for the reminder that we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made, and we praise you for it. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to work through our own uh, past experiences and issues of identity. We know that we are firmly rooted in our identity in Christ, but also that you've made us in the color and the shapes and distinctive ways very intentionally, very fearfully, and very wonderfully. So, Lord, help us to embrace that part of our lives. Help us to give thanks and praise to you for who we are and also for whose we are. I pray, Lord, that this church, brothers and sisters who've gathered here, would be very intentional and prayerful about what it means to care for one another, not to put race aside, but to put it in front we know it's not the most important thing, but it's not unimportant. So help us, Lord, to find that right balance and talk and pray 
and weep and work through this together. Thank you so much, Lord, for this time and for the balance of our retreat as we continue to talk and fellowship together. For we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.